Thunderdome, Terracore, Nightmares, Hardcore. They aren't exactly words that fill you with hope. But then, Gabber has never been for the faint of heart. Picture stark, cavernous spaces packed with thousands of sweat-drenched, pilled-up ravers jacking to a relentless bass kick, and you'll start to get the idea. It went so quick, it was a virus, a real virus. Yeah, I think it's just so raw and honest and harsh. It was just something really unusual. I think I was the only one that liked it. <laughs> it's a culture of really not giving a fuck also what everyone thinks. The revolution at that time was too big, too massive. There will always be new audiences embrace the Gabber aesthetic. But it definitely never dies. Hardcore never dies. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Mahari Seward, ID Senior Fashion Features Editor, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. In this week's episode, we're exploring the uncompromising sound and look of Gabber. Gabber's home lies in Rotterdam, a city best known for housing Europe's largest port. In the early 90s, almost overnight, the city was stormed by skinny, skinhead boys and girls with undercuts, all in fluorescent tracksuits. Adopting a new, nosebleed sound and fittingly in-your-face look, they were hard to ignore, and the world took notice. As Gabber's intoxicating form of escapism began to permeate throughout the continent, Rotterdam found itself firmly on the cultural map. Soon, Gabba's singular style, indulgent drug culture, and attraction to the far right made it a target of both satire and moral panic, and eventually led to its decline. Nevertheless, as its dedicated community will attest, hardcore never dies. And while the music itself has continued to evolve and sustain an underground following, Gabba's influence on the typically haughty world of contemporary fashion and art is perhaps more striking. Through the work of Raf Simons and Damner, Renika Dijkstra and the duo behind Exactitudes, this once derided subculture has become, well, cool. But how? And more curiously, why? Like many underground movements, Gabber encompassed different parts of culture, but was built on musical foundations. Its sound is so unforgiving that, unlike other musical genres, it has never really been compromised by the mainstream. Yeah, it's very inspired by industrial sounds of the city and a very fast pace, very rough. Henrika Naumann is a video and installation artist who uses everyday objects to explore radicalization and the aesthetics of politics, primarily within the realms of youth culture and electronic music culture. I think also very much like rooted in the in the working class scene of Rotterdam. So what was it that made Rotterdam specifically the perfect crucible for the sound? If you if you have a city like Rotterdam that is so um, humid, like with like a lot of water, um, and you want to build something, uh, you have to use this high pollen um, to to make the floor tight and and stable, so you can build on it. So the whole industrialization and development of Rotterdam is always um, connected to the sound of these 
like wooden beams hammering on the floor. And so the, the, the myth of how the music genre GABA was developed in Rotterdam, yeah, like draws on this like sound that you, when you're in Rotterdam, actually you're here uh, because there's always something being built. Uh, so, so this created the beat uh, of the city and also then of the, of the GABA music. Much of Henrika's work has focused specifically on the Gabba scene, such as Gabba Nation, the 2017 group show she created where she delved headfirst into the Friesland Gabba community. Yeah, we got in touch with this great crew of Gabba DJs who introduced us to the local scene and bringing us really to the like spots in this super small village that were relevant for their development. And so everything's super beautiful, peaceful. Like I was always like, where, how... How can such a rough subculture flourish in this environment? And and they took me to this pavilion where they were hanging out as teenagers. And they said, yeah. And one day we just blew the whole thing up. And 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 there was a YouTube video still online. I think it's still online today where they blow up this beautiful pavilion. And basically their only place where they hang out just in the flames. And and so I thought that was a very interesting metaphor for also subculture in the countryside, but also one local Gabba described it like peace has to be disturbed to find peace again. They needed to disrupt, destroy and challenge. Like punk or rave before it, something about the collective consciousness and purpose of this shared experience began to quickly capture the imagination of others including photographer Ari Fasluis. I think the starting point was the emptiness. Probably has to do with its roots in a very working class situation. Rotterdam is a very working class city and a very post-industrial city. So there were places enough to really party. And also the boys were quite refused at all the other clubs in the Netherlands, in Belgium, which were more fashionable in the se- in that sense and more of a UK style. And then that led to, you know, creating their own culture, which was constantly full of symbols of, yeah, almost pissing on high culture, as they would refer it in a sense. Back in the early 90s, Ari Fuslewis and Ellie Altenbroek embarked on what is now considered to be one of the most definitive and exhaustive examples of street-style photography, Exactitudes. An ongoing project, they have shot thousands of portraits, tracking the connections between the style, behaviour and attitudes of individuals and the subcultural movements they immerse themselves in. Openly celebrating Rotterdam's harsh urban landscape and working-class roots, this scene offered a raw alternative to the slick, house-oriented club culture of Amsterdam. Diving headfirst into the then burgeoning scene, Ari and Ellie found themselves instantly drawn to the distinctive yet uniform looks on display. We suddenly felt in the early 90s that something was changing and the first real subculture that was amazing to us was the emerge of Gabber in the streets. It almost came overnight that suddenly the streets were full of skinhead-like boys, 
but not the same as in the UK, but um, almost friendly dressed in tracksuits in multicolor, candy colored tracksuits. And we were immediately attracted by this contrast of very thin looking guys, bold, but then dressed in candy colors. It was such a, a fascinating experience. And it was new for us as well. So we shoved our heads bald and went to the parties as well. Deciding to photograph the boys they met at these raves, they invited hundreds of them to have their portraits taken at their studio, which eventually became the first iteration of Exactitudes. The distinct look they captured marked a cultural turning point for Rotterdam. As with Detroit, Berlin and Manchester, it was the absence of culture and abundance of vacant space which fueled an explosion in DIY nightlife that would go on to define its new spirit. Spaces like Parktisch, an abandoned villa in the city centre, and Energiehal, a disused hangar space, were crucial in Gabba's early development, expanding to gargantuan events like the Thunderdome, which drew in Gabba's from far and wide. The parties were massive. It was playful, aggressive, nervous. It was full of anxiety because uh, everybody was sort of afraid uh, of this scene. But when you entered the the rave halls, everybody was super friendly. Uh, You didn't really need to spend something. They didn't spend, you know, on alcohol because, you know, E was the thing. It was the the start of the, the designer drug, in a sense, with all kinds of funny names. It sounds pretty daunting. And it was. But once immersed in the Gabba Hall, the soul of the scene soon revealed itself. It was a collective trip altogether. And I think the absence of, you know, the smartphone, the absence of the internet, that are all very important uh, things. It was, in a sense, a real safe space for everybody that came in because there was no surveillance, there were no phones, so you could be as crazy as, as you wish. Of course, it's impossible to speak about Gabba without speaking about Haken, the blitz-speed athletic dance style that has become synonymous with Gabba the world over. More than an intentionally stylized form of dancing, though, it was arguably born of a physical compulsion to be able to keep up with the rapid pace of the music played. It was actually a true dance that started on the dance floor, and it has really has to do with the rhythm of the beats. And there were, of course, more than 180 BPM uh, to 240. So the only way to dance on that was almost very robot-like in a very speedy robot manner. And it was that energy that was hilarious um, and beautiful, but it was always ridiculized by the mainstream audience. And I think that what Ellie and me did was to turn a fashionable gaze towards it and to document it in, in a way as being beautiful and, and not as a, something ridiculous. As mentioned, it wasn't just the dance or the parties that embodied the spirit of Gabba. The clothes were an equally powerful symbol in identifying this tribe. The fundamentals of this look were practical. Primarily, it was about meeting the physical demands of dancing for hours and hours on end. But like punk, it was also about expressing an anarchic intent. 
for the boys, tracksuit, Alpha Bomber, Nikes, a little chain around the neck, number one to number three, cropped hair, a little island on top. And actually, that was the same for the girls. It was very, very androgynous, in a sense. The only way to display uh, the feminine aspect was with girls, the hairdo and the, the bra. The sports bra came to the public probably in that time and was very effectful for, for raving. So super cool. No tattoos. Clean, bold terror. That's how we described it. Clean, bold, terror. You can perhaps understand why the Gabba community's more reserved Dutch neighbours didn't quite get what it was about. As with many transgressive movements, Gabba found itself grazing shoulders with the far right, tarnishing its image somewhat and generating fear. It wasn't so much about this particular music, but rather it could find its form in different subcultures. Here's Henrik Anarman again. And also the, the music itself does not specifically carry that. This is really something I, I understand. Because also I love this music, so I don't think that this music will politicize you in a way, but it's rather um, what is the context that you are in. It doesn't um, inform the politics, but the politics are there in ways that would be my, my answer to that. On a more basic level, it was the sheer mob-like numbers that spooked people. Gabber was massive. It was this mass and this massiveness of the, the movement that scared people away. They thought it was dangerous to be a Gabber because they flirt a lot with nationalism. They flirt with drug taking. The, the, the volume was insane at the parties. So, yeah, I can imagine when you don't enter those halls and just look at them um, completely sort of, you know, exhausted from the rave, uh, whipping, yeah, it will scare away people. But what lay beyond their relatively menacing image? The contrast was that inside it was one happy family. And that is a feeling that a lot of older Gabbers still refer to. It was their the biggest family that they were ever part of. And also the play with extreme aggression and um, all the symbols of aggression, that was, it was almost camp, you know, in a sense that it looked serious, but it wasn't, and they knew it. But it was easy to scare away people when you just, you know, you act aggressively or all the graphics were aggressive. As this atmosphere of fear took hold, fueled in part by underlying issues of class and politics, it was met with more of a general fascination in this new scene. Soon, Gabba had hit the mainstream. Not broken through per se, but the public was certainly well aware of it, and some of them wanted a piece of it. 
1995, Dutch music channel TMF began streaming a weekly GABA TV show, offering a peek into the world of GABA dancehalls. And that was just the start of it. Try searching Enagihal 1997 on YouTube. And while you're there, Gabber Pete, or even Gabber Kit Kat advert. What you'll find is that by the late 1990s, the fear had subsided, the scene had become diluted, and Gabber had even become a subject of public ridicule. Well, it died out, for sure. And that has to do a lot with changing situations. Everywhere, the, you know, the whole scene was more surveilled, more police, difficulties in finding the right places to rave. Then the the mainstream media took over. They again ridiculized it. Then children became gabber. Um, that was a huge thing. Kids that were completely into gabber in the Netherlands. I was mesmerized how much the gabber culture and also this culture of having these big raves and events in in the Netherlands also transcended all culture. Like like there were. There were TV shows for kids with GABA, where kids would be in a studio and all dancing, but really like eight-year-old kids uh, with tracksuits. And and I was also working with a photographer, Boris from Amsterdam, who as a kid started being a GABA, uh, really at, at like elementary school. He was dancing with his friends uh, on the stage for a school play. And of course, this was actually the moment that the GABA movement stopped and probably moved over to a more trance-orientated music style. We've heard about Gabba's rise and fall, but while you could assume that it was now all but dead, it hadn't gone totally extinct. Rather, it had splintered. At one end, the sound morphed into happy hardcore, a precursor to the cheesy Eurodance of the noughties. At the other end, it became faster, darker and more underground. But Gabba had also migrated beyond the reach of Rotterdam, with thriving scenes existing in neighbouring Germany and Flanders. In the latter, it found itself eagerly welcomed by the area's cultural hotspots, like Ghent, Bruges and, above all, Antwerp. Not only was this a testament to Gabba's appeal beyond Rotterdam, it also signalled what would go on to be an important factor in the rehabilitation of Gabba culture, or at least its reputation, fashion. It's actually the power of fashion dynamics that brought it back. Uh, the interest from the fashion world, first of all, purely to the looks and to the power of the bomber that probably brought it all back. What do you think it was that drew fashion people to Gabba in particular, though? Sexiness. I think that's that. That was also for us the attraction. It was really sexy to see, you know, five thousands of boys dancing in ecstasy, yeah, undressed bodies, sweating. Yeah, probably it's that. So it comes down to sexiness, I think. I love fashion people. I, you know, but but I think it's it's uh, when you're so caught up in references and symbols, you know, like it's a uh, yeah. Also, fashion is also the art of changing yourself or reinventing yourself with a different style or um, different trend. And the, yeah, and I think Gabba like 
they are fine. They started something and I think it will be like this forever. And that's also, I don't know, like can give you like some peace, yeah? peace that has to be disturbed to find peace again. It makes perfect sense. Night scenes have always been a font of inspiration for fashion designers, many of whom have experienced those scenes themselves. The image of wiry, skinhead men in tracksuits jacking to punishing beats leaves a visceral impression. What makes Gabba's relationship with fashion most notable, however, is its influence on the evolution of men's style. It all goes back to Raph Simmons, who in 1999 presented his spring-summer 2000 collection, Summa Cum Laude. Celebrating Rotterdam's Gabber culture, at a time when ridicule was still raw, his show saw boys with cropped haircuts storm the runway in oversized bombers and baggy nets, directly referencing the logo of Rotterdam Terracore. Ref started, I think, in the early 2000s with bringing Gabber um, into the shows. That's Liz Rutten, an Amsterdam-based model agent and former model, who's worked with brands including Vetement, Gucci and Balenciaga. He was from Belgium, so there were for sure the kids there raising. And he streetcasted all his models, which I think is very cool, and brought them to Paris. She first got into Gabba as a teen growing up in the Netherlands. Curiously, though, it was on moving to Paris for work that she found herself fully leaning into the uncompromising sound. At the time I was discovering it, it kind of disappeared a little bit, but some of the songs just were kind of a trend. But mainly they were being laughed at and not respected much. Uh, it was just so away from the norm and from what you usually hear in the clubs in MCM. So um, the hairstyles, you know, it was all the same in my class. And, and everyone was wearing like the same polo that was cool or like the... It was just very standard. And then you would just see like a bunch of guys in tracksuits um, with shaved heads, red tails, like so different. What made Raf's referencing of Gabba culture particularly impactful to Liz and a legion of others was the casting of his shows, with the lithe club kids he sent down the runway anathema to the athletic, muscular ideal of the late 1990s. Well, I think it was just very inspiring and 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 interesting to see a change in in casting and also ref kind of just followed what he loved and and he loved this culture and i think other brands got very inspired by it other directors and and designers and um as well i did because my casting is far from the norm of course, we are a big fan of Ralph Simons. Here's Ari again. We come from all the same thinking and district. I understand where, where his aesthetics comes from, and probably he understands where my aesthetics comes from. So that needs no explanation. I guess what I find interesting is that this look had been so extensively derided at this point. What was it like seeing it get picked up by fashion? I think it was fabulous because it is, in a sense, a true compliment on what we saw as relevant uh, maybe 10 years ago. It is picked up by uh, a bigger fashion crowd. So, yeah, it was a reassurance of our thinking and our feelings. 
Well, to me, it was it was really inspiring that uh, fashion doesn't only create clothes, but it actually looks at youth and and at subcultures and brings it into collections. Uh, not only with styling, but also casting, um, seeing not just the usual norm of models, but also uh, models with shaved heads or um, just cool haircuts or bleached hair was just so cool that also to make them feel appreciated and seen to to not just have this normal masculine aesthetic. Raph's appreciation and legitimization of what had become, well, cringe, paved the way for other designers to discover and celebrate Gabba. Chris Van Asch nodded to the Gabba look in his autumn-winter 2017 Hard Dior collection for Dior Homme. In the same year, Matthew Williams of Alix and Givenchy released a Rotterdam zine. Perhaps the best-known celebrations of Gabba culture have come by way of Demna, the current creative director of Balenciaga and former and founding member of Vetmont. In 2017, Vetements presented a collection that drew inspiration from Ari and Ellie's Exactitude series, referencing the shoot that started it all. The Vetements collection that really focused on the enlarged arms of the alpha jacket uh, was a huge turning point to uh, look back on the Gabber culture. And then also with Demna and the Vetmont collections and later the Balenciaga that w- and especially the show that was based on exactitudes. One of the, the biggest moments was again the Gabber outfit in that show. Of course, there are distinctions to be made between the somewhat romanticised image of Gabba that has percolated into quote-unquote cool spaces and the actual scene as it continues to exist on the ground. A cynic could argue that the interest in Gabba from a fashion perspective has more to do with seeing it as a cultural phenomenon and deposit of references, rather than with an active desire to engage with it on its own terms. Still, Gabba's perennial fashionability has been a crucial factor in securing its wider cultural relevance. Its aesthetic continues to inform and arguably define fashion's masculine ideal, while musically, it's influenced a panoply of genres, from contemporary techno and hardstyle to hyperpop. But the interest in Gabba and, and raving and the parties, I think it is not that much based in nostalgia. I really feel that it's still progressing um the the music and the genre and um you see you hear fabulous tracks in the clubs uh, right now but it's more landscapey or disruptive um than uh, a full set of 7 hours the same hardcore there's something about gabba's uncompromising viscerality its embrace of chaos and aggression that offers a catharsis for those living in contexts regimented by polite social codes. Like wearing a Slayer t-shirt or listening to gangster rap, playing with fashion and music allows some people to access parts of themselves and their desires without the perceived risk of living those lives for real. For others, even a few photos and grainy YouTube videos can inspire them to create new scenes for themselves, building on the sentiment and promise of freedom that these movements offered. Henrik and Naaman again. In the end, the music is 
what people love and also what gets them happy, but also what maybe helps them to escape certain situations. For Liz, a Dutch native, Gabra continues to light the heart of youth culture in the Netherlands. I think it still inspires people that they are going out of this bubble and just, you know, coming together and um, making people just feel like you can wear what you want and you can do whatever you want with your hair. And just like, it's still not really appreciated a lot. And Netherlands is still like, in Amsterdam, we're very open minded, but where one of my boys came from that I, I scouted for Balenciaga also, he came from a village where still everything was like that. So he had also a shaved head and, and he was also inspired by them. So I think it's just like being different and it's okay to be different. I think that's where they kind of stand for. Hardcore never dies. It is constantly reincarnated. And as one of the key people to have immortalized those early days for future generations to discover, we'll leave Ari to have the last word. There will always be a reference, uh, I think. Only the audiences will change, and that is the exciting part, that new audiences embrace the, the Gabber aesthetic and, the, and the, the Gabber sound and the whole idea about it, but in a much more liquid way than bits and pieces. Um, but the bits and pieces, I think, always will be there because fashion needs to be in a context. Otherwise, it's simply style without content. And I think we don't like that altogether. Identity was written and presented by Mahoro Seward, with additional writing by Ailey Duffy and Amelia Phillips. Research was by Neelu Farhideri, Alexia Marmara and Eleanor Gribbin, with art direction by Callum Glende and Alexander Talarcher. Additional music in this episode by Simon Williams. The producer is Amelia Phillips, with audio production from me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is a Podmasters production for ID Magazine. <laughs>